Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Char Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them to take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. Of all the labels we've looked into so far on relevant parties, Pan is probably the one that's home to the strangest music. Music that you might variously describe as extreme, as avant-garde, as deconstructed, or even plain old experimental, whatever that means anymore. Now based in Berlin, the label was founded in London in 2008 by Bill Kulagas, a punk drummer from Athens who'd moved to the UK to study graphic design. From the very first release, Pan set out to be a carefully engineered bridge between art and music. The kind of label that would release a pounding Club 12 from Su Xing one month and a voice manipulation art installation by Mark Leckie the next. It's a label where demonic pop slots in next to razor-sharp computer music, where haunted jungleism lives happily alongside noise, free jazz and nauseating ASMR. A couple of years into running the label, Bill made the move to Berlin and found fresh inspiration in the city's club culture, releasing many, many records that have helped to define the evolving edgelands of electronic music over the last decade. Artists like Mesh, Arca, Object, Pandai Jing and Beatrice Dillon. And above all, I think that Bill's intention has been to poke around at the edges of what makes a sound into music and what makes a simple gesture into art. Bill joined me down the line from his apartment in Athens, his base for the Christmas season, and we couldn't help but start out by talking about the pandemic and its crushing impact on music and live performance. So, as well as taking us through the history of Pan and the meaning of a, quote, difficult music, we zoomed out to consider some big old questions. How will underground music survive the impact of COVID? What kind of future can we imagine for weird, experimental and independent artists? And what happens when Kanye West steals one of your artist's songs? All of that and more as we meet Bill Kulagas of Pan. I think we should start, uh, unfortunately, by talking about 2020 and just get a sense of like where 2020 has left you as a label and how, I mean, how your year has been really. How did it affect you? How did it affect the label? I mean, what can I even say? Um, I I have to say that I don't want to sound like anyone else, but it has been an incredibly difficult year and the after effect after the first shock which was uh you know uh march till june more or less the after effect as in from august september onwards was more severe than the actual first round of things um not so much for the label but also for me mentally and like psychologically in general it was very very demanding and um also, as I told you at the very beginning of our call that I happened to be, I mean, Athens 
is my hometown and, and I have a small apartment here to always come back to, which is nice, but it's not really my place. I don't really have my stuff here. I don't have my friends, my partner, my, my colleagues in the office, you know, so trying to navigate through all these new things that were coming through in the news and, and whatnot while being detached from my safe space was very, very difficult. And, um, well, at the same time, trying to keep the workflow, trying to keep, uh, you know, trying to support the artists that we work with, uh, in the best possible way. And, and, uh, keep the flow in the office going. Cause everyone was kind of like, you know, also going through, the emotions and through the, the tough situation that we all, I guess, went through. So that, that was, that was a lot. And, um, but also seeing the state of the world and all the, the actual effect that it had and how it amplified all the wrong things, uh, unfortunately, and how, how the overall economy has, uh, you know, been impacted so drastically. and mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I think everybody feels the same and that thinking of before March, when you think back to a time before March, it just feels like a, a different kind of landscape somehow. We're just in like a totally different place. I guess that's maybe complicated for you when you've been working on like, you're always forward planning, you're thinking of what record's coming out. And then they come out, but we, everything's... We work one year in advance. So all these things mm-hmm. that happened this year were already pre-planned in production and blah, blah, blah. So we couldn't even press pause because that would that would affect our, our cash flow as a business. Speaking of like really real pragmatic stuff, because for for example, I I I used to have a source of income as a performing musician as well, whether playing live or DJing, which completely stopped. I haven't been paid since February, like all artists globally. Uh, and at the same time, the the label, you know, we're still an independent label. It's not that we have a lot of revenues and, and things like that. We still very much depend on every individual sale and every release to perform the best possible it can. So we just keep going basically, you know. Uh, mm. So we couldn't really stop, like, you know, facing the world collapsing. We kept releasing records, which felt very, um, no, it wasn't very relatable to me. <laughs> Right, right. I don't know. Uh, I I did feel confused and conflicted with my own self by seeing all these things happening and me being like, there is a new Amnesia Scanner record. (laughs) 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 And at the same time, I was like, who cares? I mean, I love them and I love (laughs) the music, but, you know, I was like, does it really matter right now? You know? Yeah. Um, I thought we could maybe open up by talking about one particular uh, record and artist, uh, which is Earth Eater, Mm -hmm. um, who released uh, an album with you this summer, which is called, I've got to get it in the right order, it's Phoenix, Flames are due upon my skin. Mm -hmm. Not the other way around. I sometimes in my head say Flames, Phoenix. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) Um, So the thing about this record, like 
especially when I was digging into the the back catalogue, like the very early stuff, like it's it's a long way from the early releases on the label. But um, you you once said in an interview that like for you, it's really more about uh, what makes a pan artist than a pan record. So I guess you feel that, uh, that Alexandra is a pan artist. Um, maybe could you, could you tell me a bit about like that record and why it fits on pan now and why Earth Eater is a pan artist for you? Well, uh, with her case, we started working together. I, I feel um, three or four years ago. And uh, she had another release out on the label before Phoenix that came out two years ago called Iris Siri. And uh, that was the one, uh, that's the first record we basically started working together for. And then we basically grew together, like the artists and the label sort of like, we continued working together and, and like grew together alongside uh, along the lines um, with uh, what she was trying to achieve and what the label does and supports. And uh, she's been really wonderful to work with because she's very open to feedback. She would, you know, run all her ideas and drafts and sketches. And and, and uh, for this specific record, she, she had done a, a whole body of work for a different project that I just had the crazy idea to kind of like combine the two things together and uh, I'm grateful that she was open to it she obviously she didn't have to listen to me this is only like a, a suggestion from my, from my side but uh, I think what ended up coming together I mean obviously it's her work and it's her ideas and it's all the music that she's done uh, but I, I, I think as a patchwork let's say of the different things that she had made it kind of made a lot of sense and uh and this is more what I always say that it's like it's just more about the chemistry that uh, we we have, uh, and it's not just me on the label. Also, there's a lot of other people working for it. like every every person thinks that it's just me behind it, but there's you know we we're we're a big team of people you know doing a lot of different stuff, and and also like a big uh, family that's uh, sort of associating the label that. Uh, work with us creatively or, uh, you know, by, you know, by any sort of needs that, uh, that the releases may have. Mm. Um, tell me a bit about, I mean, thinking of Earth Eater being, uh, I, I think, an example of a certain kind of extreme end of what Pan can do in, in a certain way. Like, can you tell me a bit about what your original vision for the label was and how that vision has may have changed more recently. I'm very curious on the term extreme and I wonder what that uh, well, stands for. Is it aesthetically it's funny because the, it's the like, presence or the music? Because the music is very not extreme in comparison to other stuff we've done, for example. Yes, exactly. It's like it's, like it's an inversion of extreme because, you know, especially the very early pan records where you know, you could often like file under extreme music. Sure, like that sure, level definitely, extreme. definitely. But Earth Eater you know, with her kind of like angelic, demonic voice and there are a lot of pop elements, there are hip-hop elements even, definitely, like definitely. it's very beautiful and, and this is quite different to like sewer election or some like, you know, disgusting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like ultra lo-fi. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what I mean by extreme, right? And yeah. like, 
yeah, sometimes the most extreme music is it's it's about context, I guess. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, t- could you could you tell me a bit about what you thought Pam was going to be and how that may or may not have changed? Well, the thing is that uh, the label started already. Well, next money will be thirteen years, uh, which is a whole lot, and. Uh, I was very young, living in London at the time, just being a, a music fan, and I was also making music and performing music myself. So the label kind of grew really out of, like, you know, out of the love of doing and participating in, in the small underground scene and, like, you know, like... Uh, mm. Just trying to contribute basically back to the culture or subculture even at the time that was uh, involved with as you know I think it's really important when when you engage with the arts in general and you obviously there's so much that you can take I, I, I felt like almost a responsibility to give something back to it from my side whether it mm-hmm. you know it's it needed it or not so it it was just more of like me discovering artists or like having friends at the time that I really believed in their music and also want to do something. I don't like the word hobby because it was never actually my hobby. I took it very seriously from the very beginning. I never saw it as a job or a career or anything like that because it really started out of the blue. Like I was just like, yeah, let's just put out a record. Why not? You know, uh, and then I just like the process and, you know, I, I like the idea of working with others. I also found myself as, let's say, um, again, I hate all these terms, as an art director by working and, uh, you know, like uh, also f- framing a lot of the design aspects of it. Uh, and because uh, I, I, st- I come from a design background, I studied graphics in London. Um, so, yeah, it started as a small also outlet of my like design work at the time that I was doing with a close friend and uh but yeah it kind of like grew over time and 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 so did I and so did everyone else that's uh you know behind the label you know it's it's uh it's inevitable that after more than a decade that a lot of things will change but the ethos is still the same the passion is still the same the the love is still there believe it or not Although it's been uh, not an easy journey, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I was actually right before you called me. I was listening to the test pressings of the next release we're doing. And this is going to sound really lame, but I closed my eyes and I was like, "I'm actually so happy to be doing this. I love mm-hmm. the music so much." And I was like, "Actually, I still believe in it. I still want to do this." And, and that's about it, you know. Mm. Sometimes it's just it's just very simple things that make you happy and make others happy. And, Mm. Um, out of all of the labels that we've had on this series so far I mean like Pan releases the most quote-unquote difficult music by by some stretch I would say or the most like recognizably avant-garde in various ways Um, not least because I think some of the music is like intended for galleries or even taken from uh, art performances installations um, so I guess I'm curious about like what was your way into difficult music? Like what were the records that kind of broke your brain as a as a young listener? Um, 
I have to say my personal musical journey has been so broad. I like so many different things that come from hardcore punk that I grew up with to jazz and all kinds of electronic music and compositional stuff, whether it's modern composition, avant-garde or like classical music and whatnot. Uh, so it's really, really hard to define. I, I think my teenage, let's say, musical trajectory is is kind of standard from like, you know, the guitar sort of punk, angsty kind of music that a lot of uh, teenage, teenagers grow up with, all the way to post-punk to, you know, the more, let's say... Uh, early electronic and industrial music, a lot of UK stuff. Um, I don't know. It's not really one thing that made me, you know, go this or that way. And 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 also, I have to say, uh, growing up in Athens was a very limited. Despite being a big, huge European capital, it it was a very very limiting space to engage with anything that had to do with subcultures, with underground uh, music and independent music of that time, going back in the 90s now. Um, and uh, basically my only, my early encounters with like all that stuff was through music press, uh, print media at the time and early internet days. <laughs> Because I'm also in this generation, I'm 37, 38 this year, so I'm in this generation in between, basically uh, having a dial-up uh, connection, waiting for half an hour for for anyone to, to love, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that also made me go even deeper and deeper and deeper. And like basically, you know, through records, like records was a huge education for me. I would go to flea markets and, and, and you know, secondhand stores and I would just pick all this weird stuff because I was desperate to like understand more. And like, you know, I would, I would grab a record and I would feel and, and think and, and I don't know, like, you know, like records communicate so much energy and... Um, mm. That got me really fascinated and I, and I really started relating more and more and more to it. And of course, I love the music and uh, I, I was just, you know, that was like from the one thing you would just, you know, it's like a dominant thing. You like, you just end up like going all the way in uh, onto all this like weird stuff. And um, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say there was a specific group, but, you know, I it's all all classic examples, all the way from Sonic Youth talking about their favorite free jazz records, and then me trying like to like turn the world upside down to find all these records that I couldn't find at the time, to Cabaret Voltaire that like you know all the way to early Warp records and like you know all the this this very classic stuff, of mm -hmm. course. Um, but it's it's a. Uh it's kind of interesting that you happen to be in Athens um, right now because I, I I would like to know a bit more. Um, I've never been there, sadly. Um, I I only think I know one person from Athens, in fact, um, and they're not like hugely positive about it either as like a music city. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I but but it is you know it's for so many reasons it's like a very unique um, European city and especially in the last like you know, 10, 15 years, the, it has been such an interesting, like, political um, site as well. Precisely. Um, 
Yeah. T- tell me a bit about, like, a bit more about Athens growing up then, because you were in the, like, hardcore punk scene there, right? Yeah. What, what, was, what I, did that I, consist I, of? I, I started playing the drums at the age of 12, and that's what got me really into music, basically. I was playing in bands mm-hmm. for a very long time. Uh, I was playing in bands even when I moved to London. Um, so that I started from that, and then basically me already listening to a lot of different stuff, but also me wanting to uh, also make my own music that's not necessarily rhythmic, but I, I, I didn't know, I still don't know how to play a melodic instrument like a guitar or like a piano or a keyboard <laughs> or stuff. And, uh, and also music production even 10 years ago was not as advanced. Of course, there was a million things going on, but it wasn't like as accessible, let's say, as it is now, that every single person has a software and can do any sort of thing they do. You know, it was only Fruity Loops and things like that, or like, I don't know, like different sort of softwares and and a lot of hardware stuff. Um, So yeah, I started basically using synthesizers and and, uh, guitar pedals and and like basically experimenting literally uh, with with sounds and and while listening to a lot of of that music, I, I, you know, I, I got even more into the more, let's say, abstract in terms of form and and composition uh, types of music at at that time. And of course, that that uh, got me more into making the music making, and and again, actually, actually learning softwares and different things. Just as a bit more kind of biography, then you came to to the UK to study graphics and art as well, or was it kind of specifically? It was graphics? it was in the art university, but it was a graphic course uh, that I ended up mm-hmm. finishing. I'm curious as well about like what kind of uh, graphics and and design work you were particularly interested in, like because I know that at the beginning Pam was, you know, very design led. Well, still is of course, right? But but that was definitely a a core part of it. So what were your kind of uh, um, inputs? Well, again, as I said, it's been such a long journey that also my interests have changed and like have been broader and like uh, I've I've learned and like encountered with so many different things over the time that um, mm. so I can't really point out one or two things. Uh, of course, there's a lot of formative stuff uh, where there is Peter Saville uh, that did all the factory stuff or or. Um, or again, all the Xerox things that uh, were heavily much in line with the whole punk aesthetic and, and a lot of uh, zine culture and, and a lot of 90s uh, also stuff and magazines like ID and Face and all that stuff. I was really fascinated by it at the time. Uh, mm. But but alongside a lot of, like, you know, there was a lot of things, so I don't want to only mention that stuff. Um And the main reason also I picked uh, a graphic design course was because of music, because through music albums, CDs and records that I was buying at the time, I, I got really obsessed with design, basically. 
Mm. And, um, you know, when... It's like a classic trajectory as well, isn't it? Yeah, to, you go yeah. to art school in order to form a band. Like. <laughs> exactly, no, exactly, exactly. So I'm a very cliche story to, <laughs> to wrap it up. Nothing <laughs> 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 new. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so with the early releases, like... I, uh, I think I'm right in saying that the uh, the first like ten or so releases were were kind of planned, um, uh, quite quite specifically styled, I guess. And yeah, then yeah, we we, moved on. we came up with that format of uh, we used a lot of uh, geometrical shapes and and things that you know in in a more abstract way they were sort of uh, uh, referring aesthetically to the sort of the frequency range of the of the of 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 the of the sound and, and so on. It was it's, it was more as a metaphor, not like a precise uh, basically representation of, of that. But uh yeah it it was just more of a of a series. And it did start as a as a little project and then of course we realized that the needs and also the nature of every different release couldn't really stand for that so we basically opened up also to different possibilities and directions mm. so and it wasn't just you at the time there's a we yeah it was Catherine Politis who is a very still is a really close friend of mine we we did the artwork together the label I was doing everything with just the co-design the mm-hmm. first uh, I think 10 or so releases or like 12 or something like that a lot of the early releases as well uh they're kind of in conversation in some way with art um either as literal documents of some kind of art event or practice or kind of in some way um related to uh sound art or whatever it might be improv or that they'd be conceptual um there's one in particular, the uh, Joke Lands and uh, Rudolf Eber record, Acoustic Action, which is like, it's so funny because it's like an ASMR record. <laughs> but it like is. The it wor- is. It's like noise ASMR. It's horrible. It's the sound of people eating, eating. Yeah, which yeah. is like <laughs> the most terrifying. You've just drilled into the worst possible noise record and just like, yeah. Um, but but tell me a bit about, about that kind of... It's funny that, that you're asking about this because no one has ever questioned that till now. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, well, there are two things here. I mean, one is that, um, uh, you know, I'm really interested in the idea of setting up a... Uh, of why you would set up a label to put out records that are, you know, so difficult to listen to. But also this... Also, it's this question, isn't it, of like where records like that belong? Do they belong in the institution, in the gallery, or do they belong in the record shop? And I wonder how much you were trying to kind of um, uh, do the quite difficult work of bridging that gap, essentially, between. Right. That's a good point. Uh, And uh, my idea was to, at the time, and still is, to basically create a home for a lot of different curiosities that. me and all the artists and the people on the label have and uh, sort of it's basically creating an ecosystem that all of these things can coexist and and you know have their own space and you know do their own thing and grow within it as well uh a record as such as the one that you mentioned uh was more of a of an audio documentation of a performance that uh was not necessary it's it's 
it's been put out on on a vinyl that in theory you get to engage with music on record and not with people eating <laughs> per se uh but it, it just aimed more of a of of yeah of, of an audio documentation of this performance and not so much of a music record um mm-hmm. but because it did include sound uh i thought it would be interested interesting to uh to release it like any other release we do and basically break the boundaries of also what a record can be and whatnot. Mm. Um, yeah, because several of those early releases are also, um, they are like recordings of, of art uh, happenings or whatever yeah. that were from quite a long time ago. Like that was from the early 90s, I think. So Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's an old like, piece. Um, this the specific one, is a, is a, it's a much older piece from the time that mm. it came out, definitely. Mm. Um, another kind of curious one from that period, uh, fairly early on is, uh, Florian Hecker's Sun Pandemonium, mm-hmm. because that was a, a reissue, mm-hmm. um, of an album that was, uh, from like 2003. So it wasn't old, old. Um, so that's kind of curious to me. Like why, why, re- why reissue a sort of computer music album that isn't even very old? old yet like what did that record like suggest about where your interests were going by then? Um, that release was a was a very uh important and still is actually a really important release uh to me compositionally mm-hmm. and i think uh the way that uh music was uh moving at the time the, there was a lot of uh <laughs> I'd say like there was a lot of focus on 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 using computer music in 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 different uh, areas than the more dry computer music field that was uh, presented before, and I think that release was a f- the finest example in my opinion at least uh, of 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 uh, of where basically possibilities in computer music can get to, and. Uh, it was also a, a, a good opportunity to give it a and like a nice vinyl edition because it was only released as a CD before, and and basically mm-hmm. put it back in the context, put it back in the conversation because some things don't necessarily have to be fifty years old to you know, you know bring it back and be like look what happened back in time, you know. So it was not about nostalgia; it's actually about highlighting even more at a time that felt very uh, significant somehow. Mm. Yeah, I felt that a little bit when I was going through some of the earlier records. Like there were there were things that were popping up from the pan catalog that um like really sound quite different to me now just because of the things that have come after of course. after them and and how influential some of them have been. Like thinking of uh the mesh record particularly, like that just sounds different to me because it feels almost just so familiar because other people have, <laughs> you know, tried yeah. to do similar things. At, at the time, though, and I'm not saying it because we put it out by all means, uh, I do think that it suggested a lot of new things in, in club culture because Jamie Mesh, uh, as an artist, was heavily and still is, uh, for the most part, operating within the club uh, system. So uh, I, I thought it was quite interesting to to do that and, and also have him being part of a conversation with 
Florian Hecker because in theory that's the stuff that he also listened to at the time but also mm. while being a DJ and also you know being a thinker and having this stochastic nature of like wanting to put that influence back to the club he came up with you know with a whole mesh sound that's uh, of course influenced by other stuff as well but as a label it was it was a, it, it was a kind of an obvious choice that those two people for example could be under one umbrella mm-hmm. uh, but of course like when you when you like zoom out and 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 well, actually when you don't zoom out and, and and check every example individually you might you know you might think well, what does this have to do with this you know but uh yeah it's 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 also about uh connecting some history dots with uh, what's happening in you know in every year's basically discourse and 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 uh, and you know movement of things mm. um another record that i think uh kind of helped um well, paved the way, I guess, for a certain a certain trend uh, was the 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 collaboration between uh, Florian Hecker and Mark Lecky, and Mark Lecky being, you know, a, a fine artist, as they say, and very much someone who belongs in the gallery world, but also someone who is a big like uh, rave historian um, in many ways. Um, and they they uh, their collaboration is um, a quite. Uh, bizarre sort of vocal uh uh manipulation experiment um but i i wanted i kind of wanted to pick it out as an example of uh a record where like fine art culture and rave culture start to cross over because something that we've seen so much of in the last five years is this real um overlap between club spaces gallery spaces Mm -hmm. you know rinse doing a night at the Tate or whatever in in Berlin it's even more extreme I guess yeah Um, absolutely Berkheim being the gallery now (laughs) yeah well exactly is Berkheim a gallery or is it a club space Um, talk to me about that because I feel as if that's something that you had almost been agitating for all along but perhaps it hasn't panned out in in the way you'd imagine. Yeah, it's it's actually a very fine example and I'm happy we can talk about this because uh, Mark does operate in the art world, but he obviously comes and his work has been, he comes from rave culture and his work has been heavily influenced by rave culture. He just extracted all these elements and put it into a new conversation, which is exactly also what we were doing on a parlor line with a label and right. Florian who also operates in the art world using sound as a medium. Uh, so it was a really interesting combination of these two people coming actually from slightly, not very different backgrounds, but basically f- finding this sort of uh, dialogue b- between their practices and, and basically respond into each other's pieces because that's mm. what happened. Basically, um Florian responded sonically into Mark's video and then Mark used his voice to you know respond to what Florian did and then Florian processed his voice so it's it's it was some sort of like a you know a washing machine kind of like a <laughs> blend of uh, of correspondences 
into each other's practices, which is which is yeah, it was fascinating to me, and, and it did make a lot of sense also conceptually for us and and for them. Mm. Mm. How do you feel about rave becoming a kind of item of uh, fine art consumption, though? I mean, I, I don't want to only box rave up because basically all important cultures have been tokenized a lot over the years. Um, I mean, the same thing happened with punk, you know, like there was there was a time, maybe not so much, it's not so prominent anymore, but there was a time maybe 10 and 15, 20 years ago that like the punk from the late 70s would appear in, in all these random and different contexts and you would just be like, yeah. but that's my yeah. culture, that's where I come from, yeah. this has nothing to do with you guys, you know. And I'm sure the mm-hmm. same thing uh, must feel for a lot of uh, OG ravers at the time that like... Uh, see this thing taking a different shape and being uh, communicated a different way and, and, and being reformatted even a different way and also even growing itself mm. in a different way. Um, and I think what, what, that, what both of those uh, kind of phenomena have in common, like the punk and rave, is that I think once it arrives in the gallery context, there's such a sense of melancholy within it again. Absolutely. Like with rave, the reason people are so obsessed with it, people like, you know, our age who were not there yeah. is because it was this moment that is not there anymore. Um, it makes me wonder like what, if there can be another moment like that and, and what that would be. But I think there's something about it being pre-internet that's like very... I think so, yeah. Something. There was something that had to do with physical space that had something to do with more tangible things that very much dissolved post-internet uh, uh, time. Uh, and I think also the, the internet uh, gave a lot of awareness to a lot of things that people didn't have. So we experienced a whole decade of basically mashing up older things, yeah. which brought us to a place that now we're going back to the original wave of those things and put them in a sterile white space and look at them and be like, oh, that happened. Wow, you know, and... And it's fun. It's fascinating to me and, and I'm sure to you because we still have managed to engage with these cultures, whether it was at the time or later at the time, still within, you know, uh, a festival or a club space or, or any sort of uh, venue that uh, mm. shared the same uh, ethos in terms of uh, representation and, and, and in terms of uh, keeping the just being sensible enough of, of what this culture is about. Um, yeah. um, so a few years into Pan, I feel like there is a, a subtle turning point um, where the records get, I think, a little bit more electronic, a little bit more rhythmic. Um, Lee Gamble, Object, Mesh and Heatsick, I think are all kind of records mm-hmm. from that, that kind of mid-period that, that suggest um, some other things going on. And I guess this might have something to do with the fact that you m- moved to Berlin. At some absolutely, point in this absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I moved um, to Berlin after the first year of the label or like on the first year of the label. Oh, okay. That soon. Yeah. But, but uh, and I started heavily uh, engaging with club culture because, uh, I mean, I, 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 I did grow up with, uh, with, uh, with club and party stuff, even in Athens and, and mm. 
I, I would never call myself a raver, but I did go to a lot of early drum and bass parties. I went to a lot of trance. <laughs> trance was huge, still is huge in Greece. Don't ask me why. Because uh, <laughs> a lot of my friends would go and I was always, you know, the, I always liked extreme uh, culture. So like anything that was like far removed from the norm and that had people uh, express themselves freely in their own world by, you know, dressing up or like curating their parties and all that stuff. Whether I like the yeah. music or not, I would be there first row because that was also <laughs> how I felt also trying to exclude myself from a society that I didn't fully belong to, you know. Mm. Uh, so you moved to Berlin in January. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll never Why forget did you move there? That, that January. Because... <laughs> uh, it was pre-climate change also, so the, the winter... It was actually cold. <laughs> it was fucking cold. It was minus 22 the first year that I moved. I will never wow. forget. Now it's really mild, actually. Uh, we haven't experienced yeah. like such a heavy winter in Berlin for a very long time. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, that was intense. <laughs> what was the... What, why did you want to move there at the time? Uh, I was... Uh, Getting a little fed up with London and the overall economy of London. Uh, I was working as a graphic designer uh, already. Having finished my studies, I started working and doing mostly uh, corporate jobs because I had to support myself, uh, of course. Uh, But I I wasn't necessarily happy and I did take the decision that my heart is in music and not doing things that I'm not interested at at all. So I had to move to a place that was ultimately more affordable and healthier to live <laughs> at. Because uh, London was getting pretty uncomfortable at the time. Uh, yeah, imagine what it's like now. <laughs> later on. Yeah, yeah, no, I bet. <laughs> um, but tell me a bit about kind of uh, what you found in Berlin and like, obviously, um, I mean, especially 2009, it would have really been like, you know, peak, peak kind of Berghain at its most Berghain, um, that sort of techno era. But like, oh, did yeah. you, did you, did it you get into that stuff? Was, or, yeah. Yeah. Right away. It was an, it was an open land, I have to say. And it, everything was like significantly more slower for the better though. Like the pace mm-hmm. of life was slower, mm-hmm. the, the sense of space, uh, I could have a bigger apartment, not living with like uh, 10 people, in, you know, like we've all gone through that. Uh, <laughs> Still in it. So having my, having my, yeah, having my own place, uh, having a studio for the first time. Uh, yeah. Actually managing to do the label and, and, you know, like put all the right amount of time that I wanted to without having to do like one or two jobs even all day long and then like go home at 11 completely exhausted and then be like oh yeah we have a release to put out and then I'm like okay so <laughs> it was it was just more of like it was just the it was an event, inevitable choice and also a lot of friends from not only from London from around the world were moving to Berlin at the time because it just felt culturally a very vibrant place and uh, yeah and an interesting space to be at mm. and share ideas and 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 yeah, like reflect and like give back to it. And uh, of course, like Berkheim was picking at the time and uh, I was already very, very much in love with uh, the whole like Berlin golden era of uh, basic channel and, and so on. 
So like, you know, being able to access all that stuff, n- not the very same stuff, but like, you know, like the continuation basically of that stuff uh, at a time that still felt very, very much powerful, singular, mm. um, authentic. Mm. Uh, it, it, it like opened up so much my mind and, and the basically possibilities of where I could take things with a label and with my music or with DJing or with anything really. Mm. Um, I mean, looking at yeah. the kind of direction of the releases in, in well, over, over time, uh, it, it's kind of seems to me that you're like acknowledging the club as the kind of nucleus of like contemporary avant-garde mm-hmm. music essentially um as For opposed sure. as opposed to noise which maybe at the beginning there was an element of that or, or jazz or hip-hop or anything that it might be for sure for sure um and a lot of the releases like even um i mean some of my favorite pan releases are like the um like the split 12s with like sushing and mesh and mm-hmm. those kind of mm-hmm. records which are yeah i guess they are quite like accessible in some ways because they are club records um but clearly you're not just you know you've not become like you know, an outlet for club music but that you know you've gone from being not a raver necessarily not a full raver as a teenager to actually believing in in the club as a sort of like avant-garde center sure. does that make sense yeah i i also think that the timing was right because when i found myself in that club also the club was becoming a space that could support a lot more ideas that i was also interested in such as um, like i do think that uh the whole innovative nature of club music at the time that was becoming more and more present and did basically match with my uh, sort of interests. And, and, and then actually that's where I found home. And I'm like, wow, that's actually what I, what I empowered that uh, basically direction even more because I was like, this is exactly, you know, it kind of all fall into place and made sense somehow what was happening in in a parallel line with also what maybe I was envisioning at the time. With, are we talking uh, about like, it. are we talking about maybe like nights like the Janus night and things like that or? Yeah. Yeah. Dan who did Janus was a, uh, still is a, a very good friend and uh, all that stuff, uh, you know, basically coming to Berlin, like it, it all started in the States just because uh, of the influences there basically from South America and from uh, hip hop and, and rap culture, which is very, very prominent there. There was already basically this overlap of like club music, you know, with, with a trap song and, you know, with, with a reggaeton song and whatnot, you know, there were ghetto gothic mm-hmm. and and all these Fade to Mind nights were pre-existing of, of Janus. But Janus... I think was one of the first, if not the first, or at least in Berlin, it was the first night that sort of like brought that whole canon to Europe and and opened up the conversation to also the European things. And and also even a lot of people from London found place there because there were a lot of DJs in London that, you know, were into crime and and into... Uh, I don't know, uh, UK funky or like UK bass stuff that, and then this sort of like mix up, like organically, like took a different um, dynamic 
And every, all of these things were sort of like happening at the same time and me coming maybe from more of a, yeah, more of a noise uh, underground style and, and, and a lot of more academic even things like, you know, trying to basically use, not use like, uh, we never use things like we sort of like uh, <laughs> try to kind of like, um, yeah, do things our own way, you know, and like participate in that conversation somehow. And then we started influencing them, others, uh, we were influencing by them. So, you know, it kind of like all kind of like came together quite nicely. Also, like by being interested in a lot of artists that were actually very much individual and singular at the time, like Aerosmith is a very good example because what he did early on in Berlin, no one else did. So he didn't really, he was part of a scene just because of his friends, but musically and stylistically, he was never part of any of that stuff. But his yeah, music yeah. nowadays makes more sense than ever. So basically bringing Eric, right? <laughs> bringing Eric back to the picture, having all these kids basically being blown away and DJing his stuff, having Eric play actually Janus parties yeah. and so on. It was actually a revolution for me because I'm like, that's exactly all I dreamt for. And, you know, it manifested in the best possible way, you know. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah, with the Aerosmith stuff, it's it's kind of fascinating because like on one hand, rhythmically, he was doing so much stuff that just chimed with all of this like reggaeton thing that suddenly like a few years ago everyone was but he was like way down the road on it and then him like basically inventing with the razor synth he's like come up with the noise that everyone's even using it's like i know but he's like, just a one man so common now that it's it's almost uh you know yeah yeah that's probably in fact that's probably it might be my favorite pan record i would say i yeah it's, it's just not like any of the others either. It's totally, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just it's on its, its own. own thing. Yeah. Um, I want to get a sense of like some of the people around you that have um, made the label what it is. And I, I thought I might ask about Rashad Becker, um, who has, I guess, kind of been in the, in the loop of Pan for a long time as a mastering engineer Rashad, and as an artist. Uh, I met actually when I was still living in London because mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a very close friend in common, which is uh, Joe Clance, who made the eating record. So it's really <laughs> nice that you brought it up. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, me and Joe met in London. He was also, Joe was also living in London at the time. Uh, we met uh, through music and we did make music together as well. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, back in 2004 or five, I think. And then Rashad vi was visiting London quite often. So I met Rashad and we, we became very good friends. And then in 2006, me and Joke traveled to Berlin and we recorded at Rashad's studio an album together. That's way before even the label started. So mm -hmm. uh, like basically my relationship with Rashad goes way back and uh, he was also some kind of mentor uh, starting off because I basically right. call him. I will never forget this day. I call him up one day from London. I'm like, Rashad, I got to tell you something. I want to put out a record. I have no fucking idea how to do this. So he was like, <laughs> look, <laughs> he was like, look, it's very simple. Just send me the files and then I'll explain the rest. 
<laughs> so he mastered and cut the first record, and I have still haven't paid to this date for any of this uh, f- from that first release at least, because uh, <laughs> he was like, okay, let me do this for you. Um, and yeah, he's mastered most of their releases, and um, he's been a very, very dear friend and an amazing thinker uh, with a very unique background, also. Um, to have yeah, because along I. Sorry, yeah. I, I wondered if, like, um, I wondered if there was an element of Pan releasing music that is not only uh, difficult conceptually, but possibly even difficult to master or difficult for any old engineer to really know what it is that you're trying to do. That makes so much sense what you say, and I have to say, no one has ever questioned it. And yes, it's very true. Rashad being so aware of the context helped so much this music to take a different shape. And mm-hmm. he helped so much for all these ideas to shine through uh, through the through the releases as well, you know. Uh, mm. and I mean, a, and when you really listen to his point. record as well, it's like, okay, <laughs> you're interested yeah. in like pushing p- pushing the boundaries of, of, yeah. of audio really and your experience yeah. of audio. Like, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Are By there the any way, other kind of... I, I really want to bring this up now because I don't want to forget and I think it's a really important point to make and something that I also never really talked about uh, publicly. Speaking of the club space before, I want to mention that um, in 2011, mm. which was still early years of the label and, and we were still releasing a very... You know, a more, let's say, narrow, I wouldn't call it narrow, but like, you know, the, the crossover, let's say, of the sounds were much more in a, within a narrow scope uh, of what we do now. We we got an email out of the blue from Berkheim asking us to do our first label night. And we had never showcased anywhere before, but doing really, really small events for like our 50 friends, basically, to see. Uh, so I, I, I want to mention this right now because there's a lot of talks around Berkheim and how this and how bad and how good, and, and it doesn't really matter, but for us and for our own history and for the trajectory of our history from that time onwards, that space has been so vital in basically being able to communicate all these different ideas and to put in actual physical context all these different artists and make sense out of it. In in January 2012, we did a showcase with Lee Gamble and Hitzik that were also both of them coming from experimental music backgrounds, but we're already doing club-oriented music, uh, uh, as well as Mark Fell, who also you know, comes from both worlds and basically creates things that, ref, you know, sort of like ping pong in, in both arenas. Uh, and mm-hmm. But at the same time, I had Florian Hecker at 4 a.m. peak time Berkheim doing a sound installation in all three floors in 48 speakers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it's like well, 4 like in the morning, kind of everyone is like, like off their mind, like going, like going like this. <laughs> and then the light goes down and it's like... Wee! And then people basically had to walk all the way from the clock room t- to Panorama Bar, and like their basically their brain just started like <laughs> going the other way around. <laughs> so 
that was an interesting moment and 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 it worked it worked and and through that like something and and actually through that uh, Lee took off uh, after Florian it was Lee who actually does come from Florian's background because he did computer music early on he released and performed computer music for a very long time and basically conceptually in my head like it made so much sense that like basically Florian's sound was continuing through Lee's set who started from that and then it took the yeah. club back on till like 10am you know so mm. that night which was our second night actually at Berkheim the, the first one was uh, in 2011 uh, that night was uh, a very important moment because it's, I, I saw the whole thing unfolding in front of my eyes. I will never forget, like, I should back by myself and, like, just witness it. And I don't want to sound ridiculous now. I do want to believe I'm a modest person, but it did f- feel very powerful. And, and, mm. and everything sort of translated in the best possible way. And a lot of things happened after that through the label. And I do want to thank them for allowing us basically to do this. I feel like, you know, you're, you're probably on a, on a constant quest to kind of find, um, interesting or like unexpected sounds or ideas or combinations, always looking for newness or, or yeah, new combinations at least. Um, I was wondering, uh, how you think Berlin is kind of living up to that these days? Like, is Berlin still the best place to be or does it maybe not even matter as much now if you can share music online and like find your global network through like online I mean Berlin uh, has been very important to me and I did meet a lot of incredible people that uh, helped the label become what it became uh, or what it's been thus far Um, I do think Berlin the landscape of Berlin is changing a lot Uh, of course corporations and the tech industry is taking over. So a lot of uh, the liberal and beautiful and and powerful cultural things that uh, formed my reality there are changing a lot. And, uh, but also are impacting in a weird way also the music scene uh, Mm -hmm. because everything becomes way more formalized and becomes more industry driven and like money driven when before it was more about the art making and and the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do find myself detaching from it, uh, more and more, uh, even psychologically. Uh, I don't know if it's me getting older and not want to be 25 and rave at Berkheim for three and a half days in a row. (laughs) Now I need my bed more than anything. But uh, it could also be that it's always a different space um, than it used to. Um, Mm. I don't know. I don't really have an answer to it, but uh, I do feel... uh, Yeah, I mean, the times are changing and uh, Berlin is also changing, you know. Uh, And I do feel like like a migrating bird somehow that like goes to a warmer climate seeking for for new experiences every time uh, because that sort that informs my reality and, and I, I can't stay still I, I'm always 
you know, I'm really passionate in, in you know, uh, understanding uh, everyday's life and, and putting this information back into my context and then, you know, give something mm. back to it. Um, I have like three or four questions left. Um, so I wanted to think a bit about Pan's impact on other scenes and other artists, um, which I think is quite substantial. Um, and I kind of wanted to think more broadly about what uh, the role of independent labels is these days. Obviously, that is the uh, kind of the tagline of this series. But, um, you know, in many ways, there isn't that much of a meaningful distinction between underground and mainstream anymore. Um, the internet has a lot to do with that. Um, but ultimately, a label like Pan is still a channel for bringing avant-garde concepts to a different audience, maybe to mm -hmm. a wider audience, um, mm -hmm. and probably better or at least differently than an art gallery could. Mm -hmm. um, so a few years ago, you put out a compilation called Mono no Oware, and it had a track on it that ended up being sampled uh, without permission, without credit or payment by a fairly famous rapper. Um, and you responded to all of that publicly with a response that I thought was uh, quite refreshing, really, like it was quite direct. Um, and in this response, you suggest that uh, that kind of activity, that kind of uh, uncredited uh, sampling without permission is capitalising on underground culture because, as you said, culture trickles up. Uh, so I'm interested in the idea, like culture trickles up. I mean, what is really the purpose of a label like Pan, if not to propel culture upwards, I guess? Or, I mean, to pick that apart a bit more, like, does culture have to trickle up? Does it have to be bad? Yeah, uh, I want to mention, I want to say that uh, one of the things that always bothered me with so-called underground culture is the whole niche attitude that a lot of these things uh, have in common. And I, you know, I, I found so much uh, significance and, and joy through a lot of different areas that I, I always felt very confused why people wanted to guard all this information so much mm -hmm. and, and keep them to themselves or to the ones who know, you know. I, I thought the most, you know, I, like my, my attitude was always to basically welcome as many people in as possible and, and have them engage with it and like share this knowledge. It's not about us beholding, you know, like, a, you know, information, you know, information is for everyone. And, uh, and it's, if something good, I will be more than happy to send it to you and be like, hey, you should check this out, you know. So it's very much simple uh, idea, but through the label also, it's something that I do think a lot of like, how can I basically make Florian Hecker's difficult work understood to, you know, a, a techno key, you know, and vice versa, you know. So having someone exploiting that uh who is in a position to support that even more. That's the confusing part. And when uh, you say support, like he didn't ask and he didn't credit. Of course. And he didn't pay. Of course. Yeah. He, 
Like if he cannot pay, I would never be able to pay. You know? it's, it's as simple. You know, it's, it's simple mathematics. It's not me who's going to decide this. Uh, so all I'm saying is if Karim Lotfi, if he would offer him anything, like $1,000 to Kanye West is one euro in my pocket, you know. Oh but God, but so to, to, to Kareem would make him make another record of uh, equally amazing music. But in the end, yeah, we had yeah. to like waste the ton of money to lawyers and like go through all this craziness for no for no reason, you know. So mm. this is what I call out for a narcissistic uh, nature because it's basically feudalism. It's like when you're a king, when it's like a very feudal nature of like thinking that you're there feeling entitled that you deserve the world and you can use anything you want in the world. And then you have all the other layers of people basically working for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my way of thinking. I may be wrong. I don't know. But uh, I think that since he can benefit so much from things in the underground, meaning below him, why would he at least do the minimum of basically... Pay the yeah. respect. It's also very disrespectful. You know, I'm not going to use your writing to put it out on an album just because I can. But is there something to be said for like uh, putting up certain barriers around underground music? Like, is there value in making things less accessible or not? You know, when in the 90s, getting into difficult music, even when dial up modems came along. It was hard to find the information. It took a long time to work it out. And now, you know, between Spotify, of course, and and the internet generally, the barrier to discovering complicated things is, you know, very low. Do you ever do you ever wish that you could kind of protect <laughs> your scene from from the mainstream in any way? Yeah, but I'm also open to where things are leaning towards and then find new solutions and new models out of that. I don't want to bring things back. I want to, you know, like my responsibility at least would be to, you know, make something better that has never been before. Mm. Uh, That's, you know, that's how I go about it. But uh, of course that takes a lot of time and, takes a lot um, of experiments and, and risks to be taken in order to come up with a more solid idea of how you can uh, protect your ownership of, of the copyrights of the work, but also, you know, give full access to people to it and, and so on. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just dig into that a little bit more before we end. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, just thinking of how much the music industry has changed since you started the label um you i guess i guess the label started like the same year that spotify came out actually or r- roughly then but um so like now we have a world where like music is basically devalued in terms of like spotify refusing to pay anything like a, a valid amount per stream um a music press which is kind of dying out so old channels of sharing information are kind of disappearing of course and then this year then this year with like the last the last thing that was bringing any money <laughs> was live music um has obviously um Varnished. undergone yeah, yeah it's it's a, i mean we don't even know what we're, we're yet to even sift through the wreckage because we yeah. don't know but 
tell me like have you been thinking at all about um uh, uh like the future of independent music or underground music or th- or different ways that pan might be able to operate in future do you have any kind of thoughts about how we as a sort of scene or network could try to work on that yeah i mean obviously we think about it a lot even before uh, covid hit uh, right. things have been not going great for a long while and and that uh, downfall of economy has impacted uh, all of us both press journalism um, the artists the quality of the output because and also you as a journalist if i pay you 20 years you're not going to put the same effort if you you know in you know uh, in comparison to getting properly for what you should you know deserve to be doing and so on. And the same goes to the artists and to the performance and so on. So I think everything's sort of shrinking more and more and more and more and more because there's nothing really left. And uh, it's becoming asphyxiating. But uh, I do think that both collectively and individually, we can all do things for things to change, um, obviously. Um we as a label haven't fully initiated any of this stuff yet because we still rely on a sort of traditionalist infrastructure that we built the label on. So it's not really easy to like stop everything and and uh, take a year off because that's the minimum that we need to restructure and like reformat all these right. potential new ways of doing things. You know, I, I say this every day. I, I wish I could actually stop, not do anything for one year and work towards all these new things and, and, and eventually open up the conversation to the communities and, and let more ideas in, see how others could benefit from, see w- if others have a, a better suggestion on, on a potential new structure that uh, we could all do. Uh, Matt Dreyer is, is a good example of of, uh, of a thinker on that regard. He's uh, He's been a very close friend and associate to the label for many, many years. Uh, he used to work for the label for a few years as well. Um, so we've been talking with Matt for forever. Like I feel it's mm-hmm. been like seven or eight years now that we're like, we have to do something. Sadly, it hasn't happened, but I'm actually at a stage that I need to see a change like right now, because of course, uh, excuse me for the fresh uh, shit hit the fan and we cannot just keep going like this. Um, yeah. And I love music. I love putting out records, but uh, I am going to reach this point that's very soon come to come that I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's also not enough for the culture itself to keep basically operating in a way that things did 30 years ago. It's yeah. a very different reality. Um, I know, of course, all these like micro gestures that, uh, not micro, because actually it was quite uh, important, like let band camp, help with of course all the Fridays the monthly Fridays and uh, a lot of Patreon subscriptions and memberships sort of you know they help the flow going for a little bit it's not a long-term solution by all means uh, but at least making people you know donate a little 
thing every month that adds up to something that can help you keep up with your writing, with your music production, with your photography and with whatever field you're you But I'm sure Matt would probably say that, you know, the issue with that is that uh, it still adheres to the logic of everyone being like an independent contractor, an independent worker. And it's like, nothing works unless we're all part of it. So the idea of like, ooh, I'll just like send a dollar over here and a euro over there. It's like, why aren't we just pooling our money? (laughs) Yeah, no, of course. I know. I completely agree with that. Hmm. Um, hey, let's uh, spin this round and end on a brighter note, though. <laughs> yes. Um, because nothing is nothing is final. Nothing is ever finished. Nothing is over. Um, we are in the middle of a crisis, and with crisis comes opportunity, as um, as a Greek person would well know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, tell me a bit about like what really excites you at the moment in terms of where where is the interesting art where is the interesting music is there a scene is there a style what have you been listening to where is your ear taking I, you i have to say that this year i mean i listen i always listen to a lot of music but i i was slightly out of focus on what's oh, what everybody was yeah 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 definitely so i can name a million things that i like but i wouldn't necessarily be able to create a framework around them and, and point people <laughs> there do you, do you understand what i mean and be like check this blah blah yes. blah thing because it's uh yes. you know it's an interesting way and i do think that this more individualistic things made a lot more sense this year because it was hard to for greater ideas to manifest under these uh, crazy conditions anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most beneficial thing that happened to me was actually to have some time off and, and rethink and uh, Good. read a lot. Uh, what was I've, your, what was your uh, highlight of your reading this year then? I've been That's reading, always a great question. Uh, I've <laughs> been reading a lot about um, urban planning and architecture. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, and I'm always trying to link it with my way of thinking uh, of uh, supporting culture. Basically, the subculture needs to own the physical space in order to yeah, remain in place. Yeah, yeah. interesting. A planet so, HQ, maybe. Could be, uh, <laughs> but it's also like the way basically a city grows organically according mm-hmm. to a potential urban plan that uh, very much aims, you know, for, for always, uh, doesn't always go as planned, but uh, at least the, the ethos around the making it, uh, I try to think of it culturally and how a new platform, a new uh, philosophy, to say the least, uh, could uh, basically help the community that we were just talking about to mm. work together, but, you know, not having a centralized economy always around it, but like basically allow them to grow uh, organically. Mm. Um, so that's where my head is at right now. I don't know if that captures what you Great. No to. music, just urban planning textbooks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that case... Thank you very much, Bill. That was really interesting. Thank you for being on Relevant Parties. I, I appreciate uh, your time and, and all the good energy you put to it. You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. 
If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels. 